Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. This morning we will be reading the entirety of this chapter. Genesis chapter 17. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? 
And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with them, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we considered the good, the bad, and the ugly of the church according to Genesis 16. Well, today we are going to continue to consider this topic of the church, but more specifically, we're going to consider the topic of the status of children within the church. Should children, those who have not yet professed faith, should they be thought of as members of the church? Should they receive the sacrament of baptism? Can we rightfully embrace the idea of children's church? Not in the sense that we should have a separate worship service for children, but in the sense that children are a part of the church that our children can view the church as their community, as their body. Well, I grew up as a Baptist in a very staunchly Roman Catholic area. I remember in college when I first came across the Reformed understanding of infant baptism and the Reformed understanding of the church, it seemed to me quite confusing and overly complicated. It seemed this way to me in part because I did not see the relevance of Genesis 17. Indeed, this theme of the relevance of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant is a theme that we've seen throughout this Abrahamic section of the book of Genesis. For instance, we have already seen how we are saved just as Abraham was saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We have witnessed how we are pilgrims and exiles, just as Abraham was a pilgrim and an exile in a land that was not his own. We have witnessed how Abraham's struggle in the Christian life is essentially our struggle in the Christian life. 
oftentimes what we see with our eyes in our circumstances does not appear to agree with what we have heard with our ears in God's word. There's this tension between our eyes and our ears, between what God says to us in his word and our circumstances in our life. And last week, we also saw that Abram's experience in the church is our experience in the church. The church is made up of sinners. And oftentimes, sin in the church drives people away from the church, but yet God cares for the weak and for the wandering. Abraham is relevant. Abraham is the paradigm for us as New Covenant Christians. This theme of the relevance of Abraham is a theme that we also will see here in Genesis 17 as we consider this topic of the status of children in the church. Can we embrace, can we rightly embrace children's church? As we seek to answer this question, I'd like to do so in four main ways. Excuse me, three main ways. Uh, First, we'll consider uh, the fact that this Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. This Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant. Second, we'll consider that this Abrahamic, this everlasting Abrahamic covenant includes children. Last of all, we'll consider circumcision as the sign of covenant membership. Last of all, we'll consider circumcision circumcision as a sign of covenant membership. Well, you'll notice that Genesis 17 opens up with the narrator telling us that Abram is 99 years old. It's been 13 years since Ishmael's been born. 13 years. 25 years since God first called Abram to leave his homeland and issued to him these great promises. Now in Genesis 17, God comes to Abram yet again, not to fulfill his promises, but to remind him once again what he will do for Abram. I'm sure Abram was getting a little tired of God speaking, but not acting, not fulfilling these promises in his life. And so here in Genesis 17, we yet again are reminded of what God will do for Abram. God will make Abram's family into a great nation. Indeed, kings will come from Abram's lineage. God tells Abram yet again that his family will one day possess the land of Canaan. God even gives Abram a new name. And what's that name? Well, Abram becomes Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. God also tells Abram, or Abraham, here that this covenant, this covenant that he made with Abram in Genesis 12 and ratified in Genesis 15 and now is confirming here in Genesis 17, this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, is an everlasting covenant. So look with me in verse 7. God says this to Abraham, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Skip down to verse 13 as God is speaking about 
the sacrament of circumcision. And he says, so shall my covenant be in your flesh and everlasting covenant. And then yet again in verse 19, as God is promising that Isaac will one day be born, he says, I will establish my covenant with Isaac as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This covenant is an everlasting covenant. Now, boys and girls, what does, what does the word everlasting mean? Well, it means that, that something has no end, no terminus. It has a beginning, but it has no end. We all, as human beings, are everlasting creatures. We all have a beginning, but we all will continue to live perpetually as a body and soul creatures, whether it be in the new creation or in, in, uh, in the, the uh, lake of fire. So we are everlasting creatures. And boys and girls, apart from your existence, apart from your relationship with God, pretty much everything else in your earthly life is not everlasting. You're not going to be a child forever. You're not going to be an adolescent forever. You're not going to be, hopefully, in school forever. You're also not going to have the energy that you have now forever. But God here is telling Abraham that this covenant that he has made with him is everlasting. It has no end point. It's, it's ongoing. And the new covenant seems to confirm this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, the apostle Paul tells us, that if you are Christ's, meaning if you belong to Jesus, if you believe in him, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you believe, you are a child of Abraham. You're not a child of Moses. You're not a child of Noah. You're a child of Abraham. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says much the same thing. He refers to Abraham as our father, Abraham. Abraham is our father. We're his offspring. Paul continues on in this verse and says that if you believe, you are walking in the footsteps of father Abraham. What Paul is telling us here is that the Abrahamic covenant is still in force. The new covenant is really just a readministration of this ancient Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis 12, ratified in Genesis 15, is now confirming here in Genesis 17, is still in force today. It's relevant to us. Indeed, the great reformer John Calvin says this about the Abrahamic covenant. He says, The Abrahamic covenant is so much like the new covenant in substance and reality that the two are one and the same. The covenant made with Abraham is no less enforced today for Christians than it was of old for Jewish people. This covenant is indeed an everlasting covenant. Well, this everlasting covenant includes not only adults, but it also includes children. So look with me again at verse 17. I mean, uh, uh, chapter 17, verse 7. God says to Abram, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. What is God saying here? Well, he's saying that he will be a God to Abraham and his children. 
He's saying that he will be a God to Abraham and his descendants. He is saying here that children are included in this everlasting covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, then, we see that children not only are a part of this everlasting covenant, but they're treated as members of this covenant. They receive the sign of circumcision, and they're catechized and taught in the ways of Yahweh. Now, we've already seen that this Abrahamic covenant is everlasting, that the new covenant is really just a readministration of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the question that we should ask as new covenant Christians is this. Is the practice of including children in this everlasting covenant, is the practice of including children in this everlasting covenant continued or discontinued in the new covenant? Is this practice of including children in this everlasting covenant continued or discontinued now in the era of the new covenant? Well, our assumption should be that it continues because this covenant is indeed an everlasting covenant. But what evidence do we have from the New Testament? When Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39, Peter is speaking at the dawn of the new covenant, the day of Pentecost. And he gets up and he's preaching to these Jewish adults and he says the promise. What promise? The Abrahamic promise. The promise is for you and your children and all those who are far off, everyone for whom the Lord will call to himself. When Peter says everyone for whom the Lord calls to himself, what what he's referring to is the external call of the gospel. Peter is saying that the gospel is for believers and their children and for those who are far off, Gentiles who will come into uh, contact with the church's missionary efforts. God continues to be a God to us and to our children. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul reminds uh, parents that their children are holy. They're holy because of their faith. Children are holy because of the faith of one or more believing parents. Holy in the sense that they're set apart. They're distinct. They have the privilege of hearing the word of God, which is God's means of creating faith in his people. Paul is saying this as a means of assurance to those individuals who find themselves in a mixed marriage, who are wondering what, 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 the, what implications this has upon their children. He's saying, no, 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 your children are holy. They have the blessing, nevertheless, of being raised in a context in which they hear the word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Boys and girls, one of the motivations that God is giving you to obey your parents and indeed to obey all of God's law, is that you are in the Lord. You belong to the Lord's people and covenant, and thus you are to live in accordance with that identity. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy that the faith that dwelt among his grandmother and his mother now dwells in him as well. Paul is telling Timothy this so that he he would know that this is not a coincidence, but this is the norm. God ordinarily works through the institution of the family to bring people to faith. God 
didn't just have purposes for the family in, in the Old Testament. He continues to have purposes for the family even in the New Covenant. God continues to be a God to us and to our children even now in the New Covenant, after the death and resurrection of Christ. Now there is a slight change to this promise when we compare the Abrahamic covenant to the New Covenant. What does that change? Well, in the Old Testament, God was a God to professing Jews and their children. But now in the New Covenant, God is a God to all believers, to all those who profess faith, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, and their children. What this means is that this promise that God will be a God to us and to our children has gone to the nations now in the New Covenant. This is a blessing that's not only restricted to an ethnic nation. It's a promise that's given to the nations. God is a God to us and to our children. So yes, the practice of God including children into his everlasting covenant continues in our own era today. With this moment, I'm sure Abraham was probably thinking to himself, God, you keep reminding me of these promises. You keep reminding me that my family will be made into a great nation, that kings will come from me. You keep reminding me that my family will possess the land of Canaan and that this this covenant is an everlasting covenant that includes my children. But God, I have no children, apart from Ishmael. When are you going to stop speaking and start doing? It's been 25 years, 25 years since you've called me from my homeland, and yet nothing, no progress has happened. Indeed, in verses 15 through 21, God issues really the same promises to Sarai. God even renamed Sarah, gives her the name Sarah. God tells Abraham and Sarah together that they will have a son named Isaac and God's covenant will be with him. What is Abraham's response? He laughs. He says, God, don't be ridiculous. This isn't going to happen. We've already come to terms with Ishmael being the chosen son. Now, what is God's response to Abraham's doubts? Well, he gives Abraham a physical sign. He gives Abraham a physical sign. He gives Abraham the sign of circumcision. He gives Abraham the sign of circumcision, which is really a sign of membership in this everlasting covenant. So look with me in verse 11 of Genesis 17. God says this to Abraham, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What is circumcision? Well, this was a very bloody ordeal. It was literally the cutting off of the male's foreskin. This rite, this sacrament, you could say, functioned as the sign of this everlasting Abrahamic covenant. How, you may ask, how did circumcision function as the sign of the covenant? Well, circumcision signified both the blessings and the curses of this covenant. It signified the blessings and the curses of this covenant. It symbolized how Abraham and his family were called not only to be circumcised externally, but they were called to have circumcised hearts. 
What does it mean to have a circumcised heart? Well, it means to profess true faith. It means to repent of one's sins. It means to be born again. It wasn't enough just to be circumcised outwardly. One needed to be circumcised inwardly. This was the great blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. Furthermore, you'll notice here in Genesis 17 that God commands Abraham to administer circumcision to infants on the eighth day. The eighth day is symbolic of the new creation. It's the day after God's week of creation. And so circumcision on the eighth day signified Israel's inheritance in the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember, according to Hebrews 11, Abraham wasn't ultimately looking to a piece of real estate in the Near East. He was looking towards the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Canaan, and thus circumcision was a sign and seal of inheritance in that heavenly city. Well, this rite, this sacrament, also symbolized the curses of the covenant. For the unbeliever, his circumcision testified to him that he would be cut off from God and from his people just as his foreskins had been cut off from his body if he does not repent and believe. And so for the unbeliever, circumcision was a sign of future judgment. Can you see how circumcision functioned as a double-edged sword? It signified both blessings and curses. Circumcision as a bloody ritual should have reminded Abraham of Genesis 15. Specifically how God walked through the pieces of these bloody animals who had been torn in two pieces. And for, the unbe- and for the believer, his circumcision should have reminded him that God walked through those pieces for him, taking upon himself the curses of the covenant. But for the unbeliever, again, his circumcision should remind him that he's awaiting a day of judgment, a day in which God will make him like the pieces of dead animals that God walked through. In Genesis 15. And so yet again, we see that circumcision signified both blessings and curses. Well, in verses 12 and 13, God tells Abraham that he is to administer this rite of circumcision to all males in his household. Not only to natural kin, but to those who have been brought in, foreigners who've been brought in. God doesn't just tell Abraham that he should administer circumcision to the elect line leading to Christ. He doesn't say, okay, Abraham, you get circumcised and when Isaac is born, make sure he's circumcised. No, he even circumcises Ishmael, who is not of the elect line, who is not um, a quote-unquote believer. All males who are members of this covenant are circumcised. Abraham's entire household receives a sign and seal of this covenant. Now, one commentator has noted that circumcision was a practice that was uh, pretty widespread among various people groups in the ancient Near East. However, most other religions in the ancient Near East practiced circumcision as a rite of purification in puberty and not in infancy. So what is distinctive about the Abrahamic religion is that circumcision was given to infants. 
signifying that God not only has chosen adults, but he also has chosen children. Again, this covenant includes both adults and children, and children are treated as members of this covenant. Well, you might ask, what what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with baptism? Well, baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of membership in this everlasting covenant. Baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of membership in this everlasting covenant. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. He says that we have been baptized into the body of Christ. Just as Old Testament saints were circumcised into Christ, or you could say circumcised into this everlasting covenant, we are baptized into this everlasting Abrahamic covenant. Both circumcision and baptism point to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Both circumcision and baptism point to how Jesus experienced the curses of the covenant on the cross that we might thereby receive the blessings of the covenant for ourselves. Jesus was circumcised on the cross. Have you ever thought of the cross in those terms? Jesus was circumcised. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off from his father on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says this, By oppression and judgment, he, that is to say, uh, the seed of the woman, the Savior to come, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Jesus experienced the curse that circumcision signified. He was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus also experienced a baptism on the cross. He himself says to his disciples, I have a baptism to be baptized with. On the cross, he takes the plunge into the floodwaters of God's eternal wrath against sin. He was baptized. Baptism and circumcision then both point us to Jesus and what he did for us on the cross as he experienced the curses of the covenant that we might thereby um, receive the blessings of God's everlasting covenant. And so baptism, like circumcision, proclaims to you today both the law and the gospel. If you have not embraced the meaning of your baptism, if you have not professed true faith in Jesus Christ, then your baptism testifies to you that you will one day be cut off from God. That you will one day experience the floodwaters of God's eternal wrath. Baptism is a double-edged sword. But if you have embraced the meaning of your baptism, if you have professed true faith in Jesus Christ, then your baptism assures you that you can await Christ's return with an uplifted head, knowing that Christ has already offered himself for you to the judgment of his Father. That is the assurance you can have as you witness baptisms within our own body of believers. Well, baptism, like circumcision, also marks you out as one of God's holy people and calls you to live a holy life. In baptism, God places his name upon you and you are called to live in accordance with that identity. And so baptism calls us to walk in the newness of life. 
Baptism, like circumcision, proclaims the law and the gospel, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of membership in this everlasting Abrahamic covenant. This, beloved, is precisely why we see in the book of Acts household baptisms being administered. The head of the household believes, and thus he and all of his household are baptized. Just as Abraham believes, and he receives a believer's circumcision, and then all of his household are circumcised. God continues to work through the family. Old Testament saints were called to put their knives where their mouth was. If they acknowledged children as being part of the covenant, well, they had better circumcise those children, at least the males. Well, in the New Testament, we're called to put our water where our mouths are. If we acknowledge children as being members of the church, well, then we should give them the sign of membership in the church. And we have to acknowledge, too, that in affirming these things, we very much are swimming upstream when it comes to uh, conservative Protestant culture today. Apart from other confessional Lutherans, uh, very few Christians today see the relevance of Genesis 17. And so we are called to grow deep roots into the soil of Genesis 17 so that we can continue, continue to swim upstream in our current Christian culture. Well, the Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield summarizes really the point of this sermon well as he says this. The argument of infant baptism in a nutshell is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still then members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. That's what we learn from Genesis 17. So then, should we embrace children's church? Yes! Children are members of this everlasting Abrahamic covenant and thus should receive the sign of that membership in this covenant. And no, we will not be hiring a youth pastor and we will not have a children's service next week. Now you might ask, as we conclude, what's the point of this? This seems sort of technical in the weeds. Does it really matter what we think of Genesis 17 as it relates to the new covenant? Well, whatever narrative you embrace, will inevitably shape your Christian identity. Whatever narrative you embrace will shape your identity. And so if you see Genesis 17 as being irrelevant to you in the Christian church today, if you believe that only those who can make a conscious decision for Christ should be deemed members of the church and receive the sign of that membership in the church through baptism, that will shape your Christian identity. That will shape how you view your own children. That will shape how you view the church and marriage and the family. But if you view Abraham as being relevant, if you see this covenant as being an everlasting covenant, that also will shape your Christian identity in profound ways. So what narrative are you embracing? And does that narrative include Abraham? Well, baptism like circumcision, are signs of initiation into God's people. The Lord's Supper is not a sign of initiation. It's a sign of renewal within the covenant. This is why the Lord's Supper requires us to profess faith and consciously submit ourselves to elders within a local church. And it's to, to this table 
that we now turn. So let us pray.